When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today on the Optusport Football Podcast, I'm joined by journalist and presenter Phil Kittram-Ledis, as well as Michael Bridges. This week, we'll be talking international football as the Socceroos narrowly lose to England at Wembley. And could we see a Euros without Erling Haaland? I'm Mark Schwarzer, and welcome to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Optus Sport Football Podcast for season 2023-24. With me today, as always, is Phil Kittremelidis, direct from Madrid. Hi, Phil. How's it going? Buenos dias, amigos. Going very well. How are you? Not bad, mate. Enjoying life still in the southern part of Spain, as we talked about last week. I'm still loving it down here. This goes without saying. Uh, as well as former Leeds United striker Michael Bridges. Bridgie, everyone's still talking about the David Beckham doco. Um, firstly, have you seen it? I certainly have seen it. It's good to see you, pal. Um, I watch it with my wife, and she's not a football fan, but she's a massive fan of David Beckham. So we sat down and watched all the episodes. We binged on it, and I thought it was absolutely magnificent, mate. Have you played against him or, or played with You wouldn't have played with him, right? Definitely not played with him, Sports. But I'll tell you what I have done. I was looking back in the, the, the history books of the games that I've played against David Beckham, right? And there's only two games stand out because I never, ever got a chance to beat Manchester United when I played for Leeds United. But I went back and I had a look. There was a 2-1 victory for Sunderland, right? Back in 1997, we beat them in the, um, in, in the, in the league. And Beckham was playing. I came off after 74 minutes, but we were already winning the game 2-1. So that, that's my um, highlight over David Beckham and Manchester United. But one that you will absolutely love. My first ever game for Leeds United in 99. We went to Old Trafford and we were playing. We got beat 2-0. But guess how long I lasted in that match, mate? Uh, for you, I reckon five minutes. Oh, just double, mate. Ten minutes, I came off injured. <laughs> so there's no surprise there. So I've got to, I've got to win so off Manchester was a bit United harsh, in the then. locker. <laughs> I know. You, yeah, Phil thought really I was a bit harsh there by saying coming off after five minutes. But no, no, yeah. no. You've got, to know, you've got to know Bridges history, Phil. Uh, Phil, have you, have you watched it yet? <laughs> I, I have watched it much in a similar vein to uh, Bridges was sitting down with my, with my wife, who's a big, uh, big Beckham fan. I just kept hearing the words, que guapo, que guapo, which means, you know, <laughs> he's, he's so gorgeous, basically. Hard to disagree. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a very in, intriguing documentary. Actually, I mean, I was... <clears throat> I'm a little bit younger than you guys, just fractured a tiny bit younger than you guys. So when all it was all kicking off with the with the World Cup and the paparazzi and everything, obviously I was just a teenager. So I remember it, but I don't remember being aware of the sort of press harassment and hounding of these guys. So it was interesting to to see that aspect of it in the documentary, which I didn't necessarily um didn't necessarily remember. Talking of remembering, Mark, do, do you remember what you were doing on January the 29th, two thousand? Uh, well, it's probably a game against Man United, and I probably let a goal in against David Beckham near post. I think it was. I actually threw it in. We were winning, we were drawing drawing nil nil. If this is the game, I don't even know. But I'm just I'm just I'm actually just guessing here. Uh, but the game I'm thinking about, I've played against Man United many times, and and against David Beckham, fortunately. 
and yeah. uh, we we did really really well. And I played really well up until that moment where I threw one in the back of the net and we lost the game one nil. Is that the one we're talking oh. about? Uh, yeah, I mean, you didn't actually lose the game. You drew it 1-1, uh, oh, I think. Oh, you drew 1-1. Okay, were, there you go. You, you, you were winning until you um, made a very uncharacteristic error because it's true. We watched the highlights and uh, you made some fantastic saves and then there was a, not a brilliant piece there of There was two uh, things, that, yeah. the near post. Two yeah. things that stood out in that game for me. That was Swartzy, obviously, at his near post, making an absolute clanger, which um, everybody loves to <laughs> see. Um, and it was obviously seeing at the other end of the field in Gulf Manchester United was another Australian playing, and that was Mark Bosnich. So, fair play. Yeah, I, and I, actually, if I, if I remember correctly, I think we lost that game 1-0. I'm pretty sure it was 0-0, and we lost 1-0. Anyway, you guys... Bosnich saved, that, Bosnich but, saved but a penalty in that game. That's right, that's right. Absolutely, Don he Giannino. did. Yes. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, well, actually, for me, like I mentioned that game against Beckham, uh, but I said I've played many, many games against him. I don't th- I don't think one thing I'm going to say, claim to fame. I don't think from what I can remember, unless you guys are going to prove me wrong again, because you've done all this research, of course, to stitch me up. I don't think he scored a free kick against me. No, <laughs> no. Oh, we couldn't find a free kick. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. By the way, you you, you lost that game one 0 So um, yeah, my, yeah, my mistake. I was giving you an extra point. Where the... I know, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I, just, yeah, yeah. I just remember we were holding on and doing so so well at Old Trafford, and I remember just being equally devastating, even more devastating because we actually lost the game, even though I played well up until that point. Yeah. Anyway, it's nearly 24 years later, and it's still pretty fresh in your mind. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. those yeah, games yeah. you don't forget. That's for yeah, sure. right. Sending yeah. that Let's clip every move... week. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot, Reggie. Yeah, yeah. I just I'll send you a clip of you sitting on the bench every week. Way <laughs> on the stands. Here we go. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Australia against England. Um, what a game, right? So Australia, massive opportunity to go to Wembley, playing a packed out Wembley Stadium against what fourth best team in the world. They've done that a few times now. They played against top top teams and lost them or drawn against Mexico, uh, lost against Argentina, but haven't disgraced themselves, have they, Phil? They haven't disgraced themselves. I mean, you said they're playing against the fourth best team in the world. It was maybe the fourth best team in England uh, because uh, it was not a first choice England team at all by any stretch of the imagination. You said what a game again in terms of the actual spectacle from an. Eng- I'm talking about this from an English perspective. It was a little bit, a little bit flat, a little bit scrappy. England got the win, uh, and Australia really competed. I think they were uh, very competitive uh, opponents. Uh, good warm up for England. Good way for Gareth Southgate to see some of his squad players um, competing against a, a side that were really up for it. They were they were physical. They had some chances as well. So I think for England it was a, a decent workout, but <clears throat> you know not. Not, not a huge amount more, but for Australia, I think it was a chance to to show that, you know, we can compete against the fourth best ranked team uh, in the world. Um, we are progressing, we are improving, and I think this will this will help spread the um, spread the game. You know, people seeing Australia competing like this, it was a it was it was a decent showing. But from an English perspective, it was a bit of a bit of a damp squib. Sorry to bring it bring the tone down right at the start of the podcast, but uh, I don't don't think it was a, a game that will live long in the memory of uh, of many English uh, fans or uh, or indeed players. No, it's, it certainly won't be Phil. But there was ten changes made. I think there was uh, only Dunk that had kept his place in that England team from the last game mm. against Scotland when they had a win. But you're still talking about a Grealish, Madison, Bowen. Uh, Ollie Watkins, Gallagher, Henderson obviously gone away. The only one that got booed. Trent Alexander-Arnold. This, this is a, this is an unbelievable start in eleven. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna big up the Socceroos um, on this because the the build up to this game 
Um, I saw that Ange had got back together with, with Arnie. He'd give a, a, a chat and a talk to the to the squad, um, a little bit of a pep talk there. I think Goose Hiddink was there as well, if I'm if if I remember. And you could just feel that they're they're taking this very very seriously. And England players that have got the opportunity are not going to go in there with a, a second mm. class attitude because they want to prove a point that they want to be in Gareth Southgate's you know thinking process. So I'm thinking the first few minutes of this game, how are Australia going to come out and, and, and do this? And the, the high press was there, the the intensity was there. The, the you know the, the, I thought that the the quality to try and play out as well, and they went toe for toe with some of the best players in the world. Now to get a result, I, I mean it was one nil. It was a scrappy Ollie Watkins goal that mm. got it through. But I have to say that Australia can hold their heads very high, and it's the first time I've seen the press over here give kudos to an opposition team when they were playing England. I know we've had bloody Taylor's turnips in the past in the years when England have had a real bad bad defeat and things like that. But they were very, very complimentary. And Gareth Southgate was also complimentary of the way that Australia and Graham Arnold and them came over, handled themselves and went toe for toe. Didn't sit back and try and absorb pressure. Had a real good go of it and basically showcased themselves and put a lot of them players put themselves from the soccer who was on display um, for clubs in Europe. You know, I actually think uh, what's interesting, I think Sam Johnson was one of the England's best players. He made some really, really good saves, big saves, uh, to keep the score um, at nil-nil at that particular moment in time as well. So I, I think that says a lot about the way Australia yep. played. Question I want to ask you, Bridgie, who, do you, who impressed you the most from Australia on the night? Uh, on the night from Australia, he, he always he always stands out for me, mate, Harry Suter. I thought he was absolutely colossal. Um, every set play, you could see England players looking at him when he's coming up for a corner and they're going, are you kidding me? And then everything that went into Ollie Watkins, whether it was on the floor. I'm, I mean, he's aerial presence, you understand, because of the, you know, like the, the stature of him. But he read the game so well. I thought he, he when he was getting run in the channels, he, he, he timed his tackles perfectly. Uh, I enjoyed Craig Goodwin. I thought whenever I saw Craig on the ball in the left wing, uh, his deliveries were very good. He was up for the battle. And he's coming up against one of the best right backs in the world offensively. All right, defensively, maybe Trent isn't, isn't renowned. But Craig had a great game. And um, Kieran Backus in midfield. Uh, I thought that he he didn't have a great game, but what he did, he was he was like a little Jack Russell or a terrier, and he just kept niggling and niggling away at um, the England midfielders and Gallagher and Henderson. So it was a, for, for me, they were the ones um, that that stood out for me in that game. Surely it's going to be a big, uh, a big concern. I mean, uh, Harry Suter not getting minutes for Leicester. The thing is, I, I think he did it at the World Cup. Right, he came back, he played. I think a game and a half before the World Cup, maybe the first game against France. I thought Australia, either the first half an hour were excellent, but after that, they were caught out a little bit. Other than that, he just got better and better. We saw now very little game time came in and played really well against England. That's got to be a big concern, though. The longer it goes on, Bridgie, without him playing football minutes for his club. Yeah, 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 without a shadow of a doubt. And I'm sure that uh, Graham Arnold would have had a chat with him about that and said, uh, I mean, Leicester are flying the championship and he, like you say, he's not getting an opportunity. But if you're coming ready, getting ready and prepared for an Asian Cup, the amount of time that Harry had out before the um, the World Cup, it's not been an injury situation. You want to play as many minutes as you can. So you'd be very frustrated. So what he's basically done there, he's put himself in the shop window um, for an opportunity if he's not getting game time to, to either say to the manager, I'm ready and waiting here. Um, which, you know, for to have, a, to have somebody like Harry Suter as backup and not getting a game when you're top of the championship or involved with the mix, 
yeah, that, that's pleasing. But I think Harry's he's got to play if he wants to like have that impact. He's got to play on a regular basis and get minutes because he's missed too much football. And I still don't know how he played so well in that World Cup after the injury that he went through, mate. So that just again is the credit for the mentality of this guy um, and the professionalism that he that he shows. Well, there's two things. I can't understand how he's not in that Leicester City starting eleven. Yeah. And then secondly, I can't believe that he's not in it, that he hasn't found another club, that someone else hasn't come in for him and gone, you know what, by the way, the way he played at that World Cup, yeah. um, we've got to snap him up straight away. So that, that does surprise I me. But I, I don't think Swartzy, the thing that would be against him is that Leicester signed him and then they got relegated from the Premier League. So there's a few, I know, I know that's nothing to do with him, it's a team thing, but that, there's that little slant tarnish on him being involved in a relegation team after being in the, champion, being the championship and doing so well. But you've got to see beyond that because he is he is world class, I think, and and he's shown that on several occasions. Obviously, we're a, we're an Australian podcast. I just thought you were the only Australian on the pod um, today. But if you look uh, at Australia's me, results, I've got a passport as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> he does. He does, doesn't he? I completely yeah. forgot about that. All Thank right, you. so I'm here with two, I'm here with two uh, typical Australians, and we're just uh, chewing the fat over uh, Australia's uh, game against England. But if you look at if you look at their um. The results, you're sorry, your guys' results over um, <laughs> over this year, they're, they're really quite good. I mean, up against really like serious opposition, the 3-1 win over Ecuador, um, then, okay, lost to Ecuador 2-1, lost to Argentina 2-0, that 2-2 draw with Mexico last month that we, that we spoke about when they when they played really, really well in the in the first half particularly. And, the, and then this narrow loss to England. So, you know, general, as they say in, in Spanish, in general lines and sort of general overview, these are a positive group of uh, results. Yeah, not... not not too many wins there, but some really promising performances. My question is, is this kind of op- opponents the best kind of preparation for um, World Cup qualifier or indeed um, the Asian Cup? Because at the Asian Cup, Australia are going to be the big side. It's Australia's got to have to take the game to, to, to much lower ranked opposition. So playing against the likes of Argentina and Mexico and England, is that good preparation for the Asian Cup or, or not? Or is it just a good way of, of building uh, the side and developing them uh, to compete on a, on a global level? Look, I think, I think the way that Australia have played in those games is the most important thing. So... Mm. And they've gone from game to game, and they've continued it. So they haven't. Their their confidence hasn't been knocked. They've actually, if anything, I think, grown in confidence. They went to Wembley. Let's not forget. And I know it is an England change side, a very changed squad. But Bridgie said correctly. So they are still one hell of a strong side, right? And Australia took the game to them at times. Yeah, they lost one nil in the end. I mean, the end result is what matters, but it to a degree. Um, certainly, when it comes to tournament football. But I think Australia won't come up against another opposition as good as England, Argentina, mm. or Mexico at the Asian Cup. Japan are good. So Japan are, and Australia are the ones that are going to be fighting. And I think South Korea, don't write them off as well. There'll always be another one, um, one of the other nations, whether it's, whether it's Saudi again or someone else who will cause a surprise. But it is there definitely for Australia and Japan, certainly, and South Korea to, to a large degree, for their tournament to lose. And I think these games... So long as the momentum continues, so long as the confidence stays, um, I think they're great preparation. Yes, you want to get wins under your belt, but I think there'll be one or two games between now and then before they play the Asian Cup where they'll able be able to get those wins under their belt and then build on it even more. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Swatchy. I think the preparation has been. It, it's when you look back at the, you know, the, the Arnie will be looking back with the coach and have a saying, where did we, how how well did we do? Where can we improve? And there were so many pluses to come from the the the, the results, even though it was a loss against England, the draw with um, with Mexico. They they can draw on this because what they're also playing against is different cultured football in different continents. So there's different styles in there, and that that is absolutely fundamental. That like you need to understand. Um, how you're going to play against other teams. So I think it stands Australia and the Socceroos in great stead going into the Asian Cup. Uh, and the, the players' names might not be household names around the world like they used to be when Mark was playing. But what, they, what Arnie has generated and created is a team that have got this real tough mindset and belief, and they're growing on that from game to game. And you know, what, you know what also has impressed me a lot is that at the World Cup, and I was one to say the same thing, I thought it was one of our weakest sides that we sent to the World Cup. But I said it at the World Cup, they they actually turn out to be probably our best team that we've ever sent, and uh, they they performed unbelievably well. And what what surprises me again is that there's no drop off. So after the World Cup and after that event, you know, you, you, one could argue and say, look, it's the biggest tournament in the world that they're on this uh, this wave of emotion and energy and and uh, support. And then after the World Cup, they drop off, but the performances haven't. They've actually, if anything, gotten better and stronger. Um, so that that's what really, really impresses me. So goes on my next question. The state of the national team, I think it's in a really good place right now. Bridgie, do you agree? Yeah, I do, mate. And I, I think Arnie's got to take a lot of credit for that as well because obviously following what Ange had done with the success of the Asian Cup, doing well in the World Cup, you, to continue that trend and to take over. And they've, they've got very different style of styles of football in the past when they were when they were club managers. I know that uh, Arnie's trying to be embraced and we saw the, the, the forward press and against England. Um but when you've when you've done so well with one previous manager and you get somebody in um and Arnie's obviously had to win the players over and get them to buy into a different a different uh, mannerism what he brings to the team, a different um style. But he's he's done it. He's got the cohesion, he's got the belief and I, I think they're in a really, really good state at this moment in time, Swarty. I was very much like you thinking, oh, it does look very, very weak on paper. But when you see them performing and what the, what the team are doing together as a unit, uh, there's no doubt about it that everybody is, is pulling in the right direction, which I've played in teams where I've had superstars in their names, as you've done in the past. And it doesn't always guarantee you that you're going to have success because some of these players just go through the motions. When you get players and managers that have got a belief and that will go that extra yard, and there's something in there that they've got in the DNA of that, that um, culture. He's done very, very well. So I'm very, very, um, I'm very, what should we say, upbeat about how the Australia are going to perform going into the Asian Cup and going forward after recent performances. And that's all in spite of the the lack of, certainly lack of uh, financial support from, from state yes. and federal governments in Australia. If you compare it to, the other codes, right? And the comments from Ange Postacoglu this week where he detailed his frustrations about football in Australia never changing and other codes getting more favourable treatment, which was then echoed by Graham Arnold. Yeah, look, I think Ange has a point when I say that. You know, there was a, a great legend of Australian football many, many years ago called Johnny Warren who said, uh, I told you so. You know, nothing's really happened since then either. We have, uh, you know, a sport in Australia, AFL, which is... You know, as Anne said, the Indigenous sport, which is the biggest sport in the country, and there's a lot of funds and a lot of money put into AFL, but it's only played in one country. And we're playing in a world uh, sport, and we don't get anywhere near the resources or the help that uh, those that sport does. We see the Prime Minister and 
the governments, they love coming out to watch, you know, the Matildas and the Socceroos with scarves on, but they must lose them when they go home. The Prime Minister loves coming to Matildas and Socceroos games with scarves on, but must lose them when they go home. Bridgie, how good a line is that? Honestly, Arnie is so clever, mate, and the way he is, like, he's, he's worded it perfectly. So uh, it's one thing that I really uh, I agree on solely. Uh, Ange Postacoglu's had a go at it in the past. Obviously, we lost it. We lost a, a, an incredible coach, and he was always going to go on to bigger and better things, but we lost him out of our country when he was a, you know, a pioneer in the in the industry and what what he did, and then he's taken his trade overseas and he's gone and shown it. But it was a big thing. Yes, there's a lot of codes and a lot of sports in Australia, which is I love that for my family and my kids growing up because they got to play loads of different things. What I couldn't understand is how there is so much money goes to different um, sports and codes in Australia from the top end, um, and how football is the global game, and I've seen how how much of an effect it has in 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 the world. And yet, AFL seems to get the biggest amount of fun when it's played in one country. So for the, for Ange Postecoglou to say it, and then for Arnie to come up and back it up, I just think he's been very, very clever. Now, we've just had a World Cup in, in Australia and our country, as Swartz is. So that was massive. The momentum that was taken on board and everybody was on top of it. That's when, after the, the back of the Asian Cup success that we had in, where when Ange won it, they, they were always saying, oh, now let's get on the bandwagon. Let's see where we can take this. And it lasts for about a month. And all of a sudden, the, you know, the, all the high-enders in government and all the people in their regions and their states that have got the funding seem to go hiding. So it's a big thing that it's a big fundamental flaw in the way that football is, is received with the funding for the grassroots and all across the board, in my opinion. And I'm delighted that Arnie and Ange are still sticking by the values and the principles to call these people out. Do you guys think this is going to change? Like, how far away is this from 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 changing? Because he seems pretty exasperated, and Ange seems pretty exasperated as well. Yeah. yeah, that's not the first time, and it won't be the last time that a manager <laughs> from the national team will feel that way. I I'm just thinking about it, and I'm wondering whether or not there is a perception back in Australia, certainly from governmental level, also the other codes, is that their line is well, football's fine. Those players have a, it's a world game. They go leave Australia and they play all over the world, all those players, and they earn vast numbers of money by, by, by being professional footballers abroad. And they also get a large part of their education, further education abroad. So therefore, we don't really need to look after them because in spite of not giving them much money, they're still succeeding. So we don't really need to look after them. And like, you know, we AFL, it's not about the we top are, end of the game. It's the grassroots level. I agree with you. I totally agree with you. I'm just wondering if that's the perception possibly and, and maybe that's the line or the argument they go along. I totally agree with you. I'm on board with it, mate. I totally understand and I believe that it's actually shameful of how little funding we get comparable to the other codes. And I, I'm not demanding that we get more. I think we should just get our equal share. And I've said this so many times over the last couple of years. I've even tried to yeah, go to the FA and, and, and offer my services for free to help them with a program to try and try and somehow uh, uh, reduce the fees in, in, um, in, in players' registrations, certainly at a more of an elite level. And I've got zero. I've got, firstly, I've got, there was interest and there was a little bit of an excitement, certainly uh, eyebrows being lifted about me actually being offering my services for free and people going, maybe, I don't know, maybe there was a belief that, hang on, this can't be real. Um, but it was genuine and I'm still to this day. And then we're talking, this is since the world cup in Qatar, I'm still waiting to this day 
to hear anything back from the FA. And I've brought it up a couple of times. And I still haven't heard anything back from them. So that's what worries me as well, that you want to help and you want to offer your services. The FA don't do them any, themselves any, any, um, any, any, serve, any well, justice really or help themselves in any way because they just they leave it and they move on and they do something else. Um, but yeah, it's an ongoing issue. If there's anything that we can learn in Australia, um, obviously America football or soccer was obviously a lot lower in their codes of sport as well because of their their American sports, their basketball, um, the the NFL. I, I noticed um, I don't know how many years ago it was taking place, but in universities they got funding for different sports and different codes. And football always used to get the the basic amount of money or the minimum amount of money from the universities to be given to their sports. And I think the the budgets for the NFL in that were, were absolutely huge in the basketball because I saw that as a, a bigger pathway for them. But across the board in the last few years, what they've done is made sure that everything is equal. So the amount of funding that goes into one has to go into the other sport. Um, so it's across the board. Uh, the funding has been distributed probably because I think the Americans now have realised that the world game and the football game is absolutely huge. Hence why the MLS has gone on to a whole new level as well with some of the signings that they're still making. So I think Australia and people in the, the heads of all departments in sport and financial and government can learn a lot from doing that um, across the board in Australia to try and make it a, an equal pathway. Next question will be, this is a tough one for for all for both of you, and we're interested to see if you guys have written this down. Strongest Aussie eleven. Oh no 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 no! This is the this is for you, Mark. This is this is this is for you, Mark. No problems. No no problems. I mean, obviously, for for me, I've got Matty Ryan in goal. Um, Correct. Obviously, goes without saying. He's the captain. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm 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 inclined, and I know he hasn't played. He started the last two games as as it's Baich. I would have him at right back. Mm -hmm. From what I've seen, I'd still stick with him at right back. and, and I'm sort of torn a little bit at centre-halves. I mean, Cameron Burgess, I thought, did well and has done well game. for Ipswich this season. I thought he played really well against yeah. England. And even though Kai Rolls has done really, really well as well for Australia, it's, I'm feeling a bit torn at the moment. I'm just kind of looking at uh, – there's a, there's a possibility. You could, play, you could play all three of the big centre-halves in Kai Rolls, Burgess and Suter. And so that's a nice luxury I, to have. We moment, can change system there, Swartzy. I like what you're thinking here. You could we, go with three centre halves. We, we if you could, to. yeah. So, yeah, we could, and I, and I think for that reason alone, I'm, that's what I'm going to go with. Uh, with my my back four with Kai Rolls, Burgess, and Harry Sitter in that line. So that's a back four. I've got Craig Goodwin. I agree with you, Bridgie. I liked him the other night. I like every time he plays. I thought he played really well at the World Cup. His delivery into the box is outstanding uh, down that right hand side. So I'm I'm definitely with him. Um, Jackson Irvine. Yeah, he's the engine of the team, and I'm going to go with him. Can I just say one thing, Swartz, on Irvine? I do like him. I like his tenacity. I was watching the game with my wife. Like I say, she only watches Beckham documentaries and the odd the odd game international. She went, how Aussie is he? As soon as he came, she went, it was that. She went, how Aussie is he? Like It was just brilliant. He just, yeah. he's, he's just it's the moustache as well, yeah. I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's the moustache as well. Uh Keanu Bacchus, I, look, I, I like his energy. I agree. I, yeah. I liked him every time he came on at the World Cup. He's just got this real energy and bounce around him, and I think he's a good footballer as well, and I think he's growing as well in stature. So would you have um, him instead of Riley McGree? I probably would at this stage, yeah. Oh, I mean, okay. see, Riley McGree, I think there's a, Riley McGree, I think, can play in a number of different positions like he did at the World Cup, so he can yeah. also play as that number 10. And I thought he did really well at the World Cup, so that's where I come onto this this difficult this di- difficult conundrum in, in in one way. If I was picking a team right now, 
I'd put uh, Connor Metcalf in that position because I thought he did really well against uh, against England right now, right this minute in time because he's fit. So far, you've picked the starting eleven that played against uh, England with uh, Behitch in for Ryan Strain, I think. So at the moment, it's the it's it's that's it's what right. we saw it's what but we saw at Wembley. But I think that's where we are right right yeah. at this minute in time. However, if Aidan Rustic were fit mm. and playing every week, I'd have him in the team every day. Mm. So the problem is he's not been playing and he doesn't look like he's going to be playing anytime soon at his club. Um, so that's that's my biggest worry in terms of our our sort of creativity, our our kind of most technical gifted player. I think Adam Rustic is the one, and I think we miss him, and we're still performing that well without him. Um, and up front, I don't think there's any other real real question mark. And I think Mitchell Duke it, is really the only one that can play. Then I think he does a good full job. Of energy, Duke. He is. Is there is there no place uh, Mark for our friend Awa Mabel in the starting eleven, or is he just a, an impact sub? I think at the moment, um, again, is that Awa's just moved. He hasn't been playing regularly. He mm. hasn't played regularly for over twelve months now. Yep. And again, I, I I think that's why I stipulated right in this minute and moment in time that's okay. the team I'd go with. Yeah. Obviously, six months down the line, if we're talking about these guys, or three months down the line, Asian Cup, and these guys are all playing football and playing week in week out, then we probably have a different discussion. I think Arnie would rather use him as an impact player. Definitely, he's going to be. It's going to be like I think he can set the Asian Cup alight with his his prowess off the bench. Super super sub. Martin Boyle obviously is in that team as well. So let's not forget. I, I actually love seeing him back in the team. I said that before the game. I was most lo- uh, last week. I was really looking forward to seeing Martin Boyle because again, he's another player. He's like, he, in some ways, he's a bit like Aidan Rustic in terms of gives us something a little bit different. And I just love that. He's a bit. He's got a bit of a mongrel in him. He's technically a really good player. Um, I love his energy um, and I love his commitment. And by all accounts, um, the boys absolutely love him in the squad as well. So he, he kind of like that's why he stayed at the World Cup. Not very often you see players who get injured and are, out, are ruled out for a tournament that stay behind and actually still play a big part in the squad. And he did that. So that speaks volumes for him. Um, I'd have to say. Let's move on, Phil. Norway Mark. against Spain. Oh, first we saw Spain against Scotland, and then yeah. we saw we saw Norway against Spain. Spain they pulled it out of the bag finally, right? Yeah, they're there. They're at Euro twenty uh, twenty four. They've they've qualified pretty comfortably. I mean, listen, the group was Spain, Scotland, Norway, Georgia, and Cyprus. I think it would have been a national catastrophe had Spain not qualified for uh, for Euro twenty twenty four. But listen, they were in a bad. They were in a slightly. Difficult situation. Uh, Luis de la Fuente takes over from Luis Enrique. Uh, there are question marks about the appointment. They lose to Scotland, which is a massive, massive deal here. And a, um, as they say in Spain, a, a jug of cold water poured over your head because it was really, really a shock. They do not expect to lose these kind of games. And from there, they've gone on a really good run. And against Scotland, they... I think I've seen this game about a hundred times before. Spain having loads of possession, struggling to break down a really well-organized defense, and then just about getting there in the end. They rode their luck a little bit with Scotland having a um, a goal uh, ruled out, a brilliant goal um, from Scott McTominay uh, ruled out questionably, but it was ruled out. And Spain went on to win, and then against Norway, played really well last night. It was a really, really good performance. Uh, they scored one; they could have scored more. 
Erling Haaland barely touched the ball um, and really didn't have much of an impact of, at all. And they were absolutely terrified of Haaland. Genuinely, uh, he's a figure of fear. I mean, they are in awe of him uh, physically, of what he can do, but they marshaled him very, very well. This is a team that has um, qualified pretty easily. And I would say are maybe just outside the top three in terms of favourites for, for the Euro. So my top three in terms of favourites, I don't know if you guys agree, France, Portugal, and I'd put England there as well. I think France have the best squad and are probably the best team, but Portugal, not far off behind them, and England really should be there. I think those three are, are really, really considerably better than everyone else. But then Spain are just behind them, I think, just behind them, and uh, they're there now, and we'll see what they can do. Don't rule the Germans out, mate. They're on home soil. Phil, you got the you got the bite you were looking for. You went fishing, Phil. Well done, Ali had his bite. <laughs> yeah. I have ruled the Germans out, to be fair. Yeah. I'm sorry. But yeah, yeah don't worry. You're, you're not the only one. I, I ruled never them out probably them about six months ago. Never ruled them out. No, 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 definitely. Yeah, no, it all changed. We all know it's like Bridgie, right? A new manager comes in. The whole thing can change immediately. And there's no doubting they've got a talented squad. It's just finding the right combination and getting in playing decent football. They haven't been able to do that yet. Let's see if Julian Nagelsmann is the man to do it. Let's go back to Nor. I've got to talk about Norway because we talk about them continuously being one of the biggest underachievers. We, in the past, Wales is a great example. Uh, you've got you know, Gareth Bale, Aaron Rams, Ramsey. They're the two players that practically sort of like, they were the gel in that team. They took them through to uh, European Championships, to a World Cup. I mean, what is it with Norway? What What is going wrong with them? They've got arguably two of the best players in the world right now in Odegaard and Haaland. And you mentioned there, Phil, Haaland didn't get a touch, on the, hardly got a touch on the ball. What is it about this Norway side at the moment, certainly with those two top, top class players, not being able to put it together and string results together and qualify for big tournaments? Bridgie. I think Phil was saying there that Holland didn't get a touch of the ball against Norway. He doesn't tend to get many touches of the ball for Man City neither. But when he does, they find mm. in the back of the, they're in the back of the net. Um, and play, playing Spain, you know the possession stats were were horrendous for Norway. To be fair, you, and, and I think a lot of teams find that when you do play Spain, um, the amount of possession they have, they just suffocate the ball. But like Phil says, they don't tend to get many shots on target at either end. Do Spain? So it's a possession in a certain area of the field where you're thinking can we do something in the final third however Norway really struggled to get the ball back off them they didn't and when they did they squandered the chances they were just trying to look for that early pass in behind for Haaland it became one dimensional so the, the, when I, when I see Odegaard and Haaland and you talk about that Bale and Ramsey team that carried the the finals I still think they had a lot more players than, than Norway have got playing at the, the highest end of the professional spectrum in Europe if not in the Premier League. Now, no disrespect to some of the other players around for the Norwegian team, because you know, we've got the centre-half playing for, for, for Napoli as, um, as absolutely brilliant. Uh, I can't even pronounce his name. Ostergaard. <laughs> uh, thank you. Yes. Um, you know, they've got players, they've got the capability, but they just seem, they, they rely too much on these two and the pressure that they must be feeling. Every time you look at Norway score, you just, you, in the past, you've seen, oh yeah, Holland. They, they, they don't seem to share the joy. The, the Welsh team, I felt, carried... The, the pressure as a as a whole, um, it was all about Bale and Ramsey, but it was never there. Or they, they weren't the main emphasis. So this Norwegian team have got a lot of. Uh, if they want to achieve stuff, they've got a lot. Um, everybody's got a chip in as well, mate. And I don't know how they do about this. What's your take on it, Swartzy? 
I'm just wondering, like Norway's sort of a team team that generally over over history, I think, predominantly has always stuck with Norwegian managers. Maybe they need to look abroad. Maybe they need to look someone else to come in and take control of these kind of like big stars. Um, maybe that's an avenue they need to look at and and try and get the best out of them. Um, do you mean it from certainly a isn't working the way they're view, doing. Like team shape, or do you mean from an egotistical point maybe. of view to keep everybody together? I think possibly more so about um, from a from a respect and egotistical level. We we had it we had it in two thousand and one two thousand and two when uh, sorry when I lie two thousand and five when they brought Gus Hiddink in. Um, that was a big big change for us bringing a manager such huge respect and such a massive reputation and and a manager that nobody expected Australia to be able to to attract. And the minute he walked in that door, he had instant respect from every single player and every player were prepared to run through a brick wall for him, you know? And, and I think that is something that, I mean, we're not, we're not talking of a, of a, of a goose hitting nature possibly for Norway, but why not? Why wouldn't they aim for someone really big, someone with a lot of respect and someone that the players would react to the minute he walked in through that door. And I think yeah. that's possibly something I, I'd be looking at if I Good were Norway. I like <laughs> Yeah, I um I was watching the game yesterday, and uh, the camera is focused on the on the Norway manager who is Stala Solbakken, and I did a double take because he looked a lot like Eric Ted Hag, like a lot like Eric Ted Hag. Maybe it was a little, we had a little beard. I mean, I think there's a bit of age difference, but maybe Ted Hag won't won't thank me saying it. But um, the, it looked like Ted Hag. I was like, hold on a second, what have I? Ah, oh, no, 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 it's um, it's yeah. it's, it's Stala Solbakken. But yeah, I mean, just going on with what you're saying about bringing in a uh, bringing in a foreign manager, um, maybe that's the <laughs> when things don't go too well for Ten Hag at, at Manchester United. Maybe so, that's the next stop. So you look, you look at Scotland that are doing so well. Um, hmm. and I, I spoke to John Carver. He's from Newcastle, my region. I spoke to him. He's loving his he's loving his um, assistant role with Clark. And what he was saying, he said, Bridget, we don't have superstars like the Spanish have got. We don't have individual superstars like what Norway have got. And he mentioned the two boys we talked about in Holland Odegaard. He said, yes, we've got we've got some great players, but what we have got, the team dynamics are absolutely incredible. And the players, that, it's a bit like what we're talking about with Australia and the Socceroos. There's no standouts that are global world world names. I know I'm not underestimating Scotland because McTominay and everybody, they, they, they are up there. But what we're talking about is individual world-class elite players that Scotland, they've got a team dynamics and they are doing so much better because they've all bought into what Clark and John Carver have brought to Scotland. And um, I wouldn't have thought that McTominay would have been one of the top goal scorers um, in the, in the Euro um, qualifiers, do you know what I mean? But he just seems to be their go-to man. But they've 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 got a team. So Norway, I like what you've said, Swartzy. I think you're, you're right. They've got to find some way that everybody buys into what they're doing and not rely on, on these two two players. Now that you mentioned Scotland, we're going to big up them because they've qualified with two games to spare. In a group that we're talking about Norway and how underperformed they have with the players that they have in their squad, on paper... It should be Spain, Norway, right? But that's not how it works. We all know that. And Spain kind of stumbled up until these last couple of games. Now they're they're sitting pretty and they're fine. They've qualified. Job done. Norway, uh, sorry, uh, Scotland. Got to give them Steve Clark massive amount of respect and uh, congratulations on what they've accomplished so far. Beating Spain, Phil, like you said, that was that was huge, right? How did that go down over there? 
what beating Spain it, terribly. Yeah. Like I said, it was it was it was genuinely they were shocked. They were absolutely shocked. I mean, it was I think it was the second game in charge for the new manager. He changed things up a bit. It it, it was a Spain side, if not in transition, but certainly undergoing some changes. So that was maybe cited as a bit of an explanation. But I mean, Scotland were worthy winners in that game, and actually uh, against Spain uh, on fr- Friday night. They played pretty well. I was genuinely impressed with how organised they were, um, how little they conceded to Spain. They looked, I'm not going to say overly dangerous, but, you know, they had some uh, situations where they caused Spain some problems. They've got the same number of points as Spain in this group, the same number of points. They've conceded the same number of goals as Spain. They've both conceded three goals in six matches, which is extremely impressive. All right, Spain have scored 19, Scotland have scored 12 but that's still two goals a game on average for a Scotland side that traditionally hasn't been a, uh, a side that has been associated with free-flowing football and scoring lots of goals. So the, the change in this Scotland team has been enormous. The credit that has to go to uh, Steve Clark is enormous. And they'll go there now, qualifying for a major tournament. They will bring an unbelievably large amount of fans. They will bring colour and vibrancy to the uh, to the tournament. And um, there are... That I'm not going to say they're a dark horse. I'm not going to do a you know, ridiculous bridgy prediction, but I'm saying that they're a team that will be able to to go toe to toe and cause problems for some of the bigger nations, as we've well, seen in this this qualifying campaign. Well, I'm delighted that they are there because if England qualify against them at some stage, whether it's the groups or into the quarters, the semis, it's an easy <laughs> win. So we'll progress. So the Tartan Army can come in all their numbers, but unfortunately, the Three Lions will progress further. The interesting link stat that you just mentioned there was 12 goals that Scotland have scored and McTominay Mm. has scored 10 of those. So we talk about Norway over uh, reliance on one player. Seemingly at this, this, this qualifiers, Scotland have relied heavily on McTominay, right? But obviously a very different player and he's produced every single game. So, so big up to, to him for, for doing it. Not getting a lot of game time with Man United either. Being ridiculed to a large degree. Playing, you know, a lot of people wanted him out. He was supposed to be leaving, but turned it around. The other player I want to quickly talk about is um, Cristiano Ronaldo. Portugal. He's in Saudi. A lesser league, of course. Let's not beat around the bush. Nowhere near it. He scored two goals against Slovakia. Yes, Slovakia. But still, he's scoring goals still, right, Phil? He's still a, a big player for Portugal. Still a, a fantastic goal scorer. <laughs> he is absolutely obsessed. Absolutely obsessed with scoring goals and maintaining himself uh, amongst the world's elite. Why did he go to Saudi Arabia then? Well, he's, he's gone there and he's still doing it um, for his international country. I think it's interesting, actually, because if we make the comparison, for example, with Jordan Henderson, who has also gone to Saudi Arabia and maybe looked a little bit off the pace in the middle of the park for, uh, for England. OK, playing in midfield maybe requires a bit more intensity than being a, than being a striker. I'm, I'm not sure. But um, there were people suggesting that, oh, he's gone to Saudi and the intensity is so much less there in the league that he can't compete on it international scale well Ronaldo is obviously the the shining example of that is simply not the case um having said that Ronaldo is such a freak in the nicest sense of the word such a um against all odds against all nature it shouldn't happen he shouldn't be scoring this amount of goals at international level and he's still doing it and he's going to his sixth European championship I mean that is just absolutely ludicrous and I think is he only 38 38 going on 39 I think something like that so I'm not saying he's going to play in a seventh but he will feel that he can and he will be obsessed with doing it that he can so just this relentless focus is just um, incomparable I think to anyone else didn't he just come out, Phil, and say recently that he's looking at the thousand goal tally for the Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I'm saying. He's obsessed, completely obsessed with scoring goals. I was having a thousand think, minutes. 
let alone a thousand <laughs> goals. I was just happy to get a thousand minutes under my belt. I don't have the stats to hand, but I think it's around 850 goals he scored, something like that. So, you know, he's, 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 he's not far off and you wouldn't back against him getting a thousand goals at all. The, the question I want to ask, and it's, and it's probably, it's very controversial. Are Portugal better with him in the team or better without him in the team? Is he kind of almost holding them back a little bit because of the way he plays and the game has to focus around him? Or does he actually help them, Bridgie? Who was the player that scored the hat trick in the World Cup um, when he came on and he started instead of Ronaldo? Uh, it was Gonzalo. It was Gonzalo Ramos. Yeah, thank you, <laughs> Gonzalo Ramos. There we go. Yeah, what a. I mean, you talk about Ronaldo. Can he? Can he make a team better? Yes, he can. I think any team Ronaldo plays in is going to be better because he the world class that he is. I understand the the argument suggesting that when he does, he holds play other players back. So somebody that's thriving off that. When you think the World Cup, the hat trick that uh, Ramos did score in, in um, Ronaldo's absence. It only fuels fire for Ronaldo then to go, oh, hang on a minute. Here we go. I've got to, <laughs> I've got to up my game again. So it's, it's healthy um, competition. And like you say, we've talked about him wanting to get to 1,000 goals, which I think is absolutely crazy that he's got that mindset. He's up for any challenge. So he'll mentor them brilliantly because of the player that he is and the, the guy that he is. But then he's up for the challenge. So um, I don't think whether he... I think Portugal are lesser if he is not in their squad, Swartz. He put it that way. If he's not in the squad, they become... I think they become disorganised and they, they've lost a, a monumental player. When he plays, he's, he's different class. I think it's a, it's a, it's a very valid um, question that Schwartz is posing. It's one that I think has been posed a lot in Portugal over the last uh, year or so. And they've been a sort of existential crisis. You know, can we have one of the best players of all time? But is he the player to, to play in this side? I think it's important to note that now uh, Portugal have a different manager. Fernando Santos was in charge at the, at the World Cup. He was <clears throat> perhaps a little bit more defensive. Someone who played with a little bit more on the, uh, on the handbreaker now, Roberto Martinez, has come in. And is someone who wants to play a bit more football and, and utilise the uh, extraordinarily uh, talented uh, ball-playing players that he, that he has at his disposal. And we'll see whether or not Ronaldo fits into that um, system. Ronaldo and Ramos both played against, uh, both started against uh, Slovakia. So maybe there's a way that they can both start and uh, be effective for Portugal. I think if you look at their squad and you look at their starting 11, it's, you know, it's borderline ridiculous how good it is. And th th they've got to be, uh, along with France the, you know, and, and England, uh, m major favourites for this tournament because in terms of talent, and now with a manager that wants to harness that talent, I think they're, uh, they're a really extraordinary team. Who am I to ask that question? Sorry? Did Ronaldo score against you, Swartz? Because we've talked about Beckham putting one I, past you. How many did Ronaldo score he against probably, you? He probably, I, you know what? I actually can't remember. The one thing that stands out for me was the ridiculous penalty that he got against me at the Riverside. <laughs> it was the biggest dive you'll ever see in your life. And I was about a foot away from him <laughs> when he dived. And the referee, from his angle, gave it. And this is a true story. I've said this story before. I'm pretty sure on the podcast or somewhere along the line whereby... The referee was adamant, and I said to him, mate, you've made a massive cock up. Wait until you watch on TV. Anyway, I saw him about three or four weeks later, and he came up to me and went, I have to apologize. My <laughs> wife gave me an absolute bollocking when I got home because she said, how the hell can you give that as a penalty? Like He was so far away from the goalkeeper that he dived. So, yeah, so that, that was the one moment. I could, that always just sticks in my head about Cristiano Ronaldo. Look, there's no debating. He's an absolute phenomenon. And his goal-scoring record is insane. He's over 200 international caps. Who am I to even ask that question? But I just find it intriguing because he's still scoring goals 
and and so how do you argue he's 30 he's what 37 38 years old how do you and i was in that position as well whereby people start to write you off at the latter stages of your career right so he's doing everything he's he's doing everything right he's contributing he's scoring goals he's still fit but it's still a good question to ask right because it, <laughs> it opens up a debate Totally, totally. And like I said, this has been the question that has been going on in Portugal for a long time. And I've got a you know, Portuguese friend in, uh, in, in Lisbon who about you know, six or seven months ago was saying, no, oh, Cristiano can't start and Cristiano's finished and this manager and why is he playing him? And at the, at the World Cup, he was absolutely slating the manager, slating Cristiano. And I have to check in on him this morning and see how he's, uh, see how he's doing and see whether or not he, uh, he's still feeling the same way because uh, Cristiano likes to shut people up with his goals and uh, maybe he's, uh, he's done that to some of the detractors. Absolutely, I think he has. Um, and he'll do it for some time uh, still into the future. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. Anyway, now it's time to chat WSL from the weekend. Joining us is Narelle Sindos and Michelle Escobar. Thanks, Schwartzy. Well, another exciting week in the Women's Super League. Indeed, Michelle, but... Arsenal, they left it very, very late to come back from Aston Villa. Yeah, and they're lucky that they had 12 minutes of added time and that's when they scored their two goals with Katie McCabe finding the back of the net in the 92nd minute and then Alessio Russo a couple of minutes later. But yeah, it was so dramatic in the end. It would have been amazing to be there because of the atmosphere, but it does pose the question, can they afford to keep on doing this? I know, I know. You'd have to say probably not because we saw last season there is little room for error. You don't want to drop many more points at the stage in the competition as well. But you touched on there the added time. I feel like that only really became a thing since Qatar. We saw those crazy amounts of minutes added on. And Aston Villa weren't happy. But that added time had to be made up from somewhere, right? You don't just pull 12 minutes out of thin air. Yes, but it does feel like now they're counting every, almost every single second where something happens, where a player goes down. And we are seeing a lot. And, I mean, it's understandable that Carla Ward, the Aston Villa coach, was furious about it because that's what changed the game from Aston Villa essentially getting three points to none. So you can see why she was fuming. Flip side though, they only, I say only, they only scored in the 92nd and 94th minute. I think it'd be different if it was like, you know, 102 minutes or whatever it works out to be. But it was also really good to see Alessia Russo on the score sheet, her first goal in Arsenal colours. And I feel like they will only do wonders to her confidence and perhaps this is the turning point for her. Yeah, definitely. And there were questions around whether there's going to be a blossoming partnership between Beth Mead, who's come back from an ACL injury that kept her out for 11 months, and Alessia Russo. I mean, Jonas Eideval said that, you know, he's hoping that something can come of it. And it'd be great to see. I mean, they play together uh, for England, so we have seen them, you know, do wonders for the Lionesses. So maybe they can bring that to, to Arsenal. That's what at least everyone would be hoping for. Yeah, because it can sometimes go the other way when you've got too much star power and too many individual like brilliant talents that they don't really gel or it takes them longer than usual. Well, that seems to be the case this season so far, right? That Arsenal aren't living up to expectations. I mean, we all got asked who we thought was going to be winning the, the league this season. And a lot of us thought Arsenal... Not because, just because the Aussies, right? No, no, not just because of the Aussies, but because of the, the new signings and also the star, star power that they have. But we do have to remember as well that some of their best players like Miedemar and Leah Williamson are still injured. So, I mean, maybe they just need a little bit more time. But then again, how much time can they take when it's not going to affect their, their results? Absolutely, yeah. Schwartz, so you just wonder, will the slow start to the season eventually come back to bite them? 
You know what? Normally I'd say yes for Arsenal to have a slow start, only picking up four points from their first three games in a 22-game season. Let's not forget, there's not a lot of games. Um, however, they've got no Champions League football this year, which is their own doing, being knocked out in the qualifying stages. That could actually work in their favour. But Jonas Edeval needs to get things right because he's made, I mean, he's made so many changes to his starting lineup each each week so far. He's changed the goalkeepers already twice. Um, so I think that's that's the only concerning thing. However, I also believe that the league will be a lot closer this season. Chelsea have won, but they've just won games. And I think there are a lot, a lot of clubs now um, that will be contesting. I don't think there'll be one standout. I don't think Chelsea will run away with it this season. And I think um, Arsenal still have a bit of time left to get points on the board. And interesting, that takes me on to Bridgie. You know, we've seen it in the past with, uh, you know, in the Premier League, of course, where teams struggle to begin with, certainly in our, uh, Man City, maybe slow starts, but they've gone on and won the, won, the tour, uh, won the league and quite comfortably in the end. It's all about momentum, right? Once you get wins under your belt, you start to, to, to motor along, right? Yeah, well, I go back to the 99 season, 2000, when Leeds United, we were top of the league at Christmas Sports. We thought we'd won the league and we ended up finishing third. And Man United got momentum, Arsenal got momentum towards the back end and they came through. And it was the, you know, it was probably the, the biggest tarnish that I remember because we thought we'd won it. So I'm all for this. Any league that I see, whether it's um, whatever sport it is, I don't care. As long as I see Tottenham above Arsenal, I'm always happy. And Tottenham are above Arsenal in the Premier League. Tottenham are above Arsenal in the WSL. And I just feel this this season, um, both competitions, the Premier League and the WSL, what I'm, what I'm absolutely thriving on is the fact that there's so many teams are going to be involved in the mix um, to be title contenders this season. Um, and I'm, I'm absolutely delighted as well also to see Liverpool, who in the WSL recently got promoted from the Championship. There's always, there's always seemed to struggle when they come at the WSL. The funding's gone in there. Liverpool are having a right good go. In this as well, so they're up to fifth ahead of Manchester United. Um, so I am really looking forward to seeing what happens. And like you say, if anybody's going to chase down Chelsea this season, the WSL is going to be huge, and the Premier League chasing down Man City, it's it's open. So um, bring on both leagues. I'm going to be watching with intrigue. Bridgie, you said you said Tottenham are above uh, Arsenal in the Premier League. Tottenham are above everyone in the Premier League, Bridgie. Yes! Everyone. <laughs> there we go, Phil. I'll just tee you up, mate. There we go. <laughs> Nice Absolutely one. brilliant. Yeah, and mentioned, you mentioned Spurs and WSL as well. They actually look pretty good. They did well against uh, Chelsea the other week. They should have beaten Chelsea or got a result out of the game um, at uh, Stamford Bridge. They did very, very well. And also, I have to mention. Um, go on. I'm just gonna, sorry to interrupt again there, mate. I've got to say, though, I hope we're going to give, uh, uh, you know, me and Phil are we're, we're, we're cheerleaders for Tottenham. We've got to give Ange Postacoglu a shout out, mate. He's just gone back to back <laughs> for manager of the months. It's never been done before, mate. Honestly, that is ridiculous. Yeah, no, no, absolutely superb uh, from Ange. And, and look, he keeps proving the doubters wrong and keeps doing his thing. And let's hope that continues for, for some time in the future. Anyway, that's all we've got time for this week, guys. I'd like to thank you again for, for joining us this week, Phil. Thanks, mate. See you next week. Thank you very much, Bridgie, as well as always. Even though I didn't mention Leeds United are only fifth in the championship. Leicester are top uh, 30 points. Leeds United are only on 19. Probably won't get promoted. But anyway, I'm not going to give you any chance to get back into that one. So anyway, reminder, every game of the Premier League and the Liga is live only on Optusport. We have European qualifiers this week and the WSL continues across the weekend too. Thanks for your company on the Optusport Football Podcast. See you next time. Mm-hmm. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.